0: It's been a busy week around here. Uh, We have been working on upgrading our children's areas and we've worked on the rooms and painted and all this stuff. Also behind the scenes, we have been planning these kind of treatments to make the kids area interesting and kind of a wow factor to help kids really want to be here. That all got installed this week. There's still little pieces to that. So uh, after the service, oh, I didn't know they had slides. Yeah, you can see things going up. That's cool. You guys should tell me you're going to do that. I had no idea. <laughs> uh, but all that has been part of the Well Love campaign. It's one of the things we said we, we would do. And you guys have been incredibly faithful in giving to that campaign. And we're excited about the impact that's going to have on our children's ministry. Uh, one of the other things happening in our children's ministry, they're adopting a new curriculum from the Gospel Project and it uh, it actually ties in really well with what we're going to be talking about today, which is the whole kingdom story. It, it kind of takes kids through the Bible and the story from uh, creation to restoration, which ties really well. I'm really excited about that curriculum and the impact it's going to have on our kids. So I think we're investing well in our kids' ministry. I want to encourage you to be faithful to your well-loved commitments. We're kind of Getting to the end of that, and we still have some projects to do, we, we want to do some work in our activity center. Uh, part of the reason for that, coming in january we 're talking about starting a new service on Saturday nights, so we need to do some things to make that environment work for that service there's some flooring, carpeting, some additional uh, landscaping kind of things we 're doing outside, if you notice that and um, we also still want to do something with the playground, it, depending on how much money comes into the pledges. So if you've made a pledge to well-loved, please be faithful to that. If you haven't made a pledge to well-loved, but you'd like to help us, we will take that. <laughs> you, you can give it to us, we, we, we will know. We will put it to good use. But uh, you guys have been incredibly generous and allowed us to, to really upgrade some things that really needed attention in our building. So we, we feel very encouraged. So thank you that um, let's pray, Father, we want to thank you for the <laughs> the privilege of knowing you of being part of your story of knowing that you love us and embrace us and have extended to us your grace, and we have gathered to mark that and to uh, praise you for that and to worship you, Lord, help us. Do that well this morning, even as we uh, listen to your word, help it have an impact on us. Help us this morning to, to understand the bigger picture of our faith and the difference it makes in our life and how we fit into your story. Uh, so give us some insight, we pray in Christ's name, amen. You probably don't think about this much, uh, but there is a cemetery plot Somewhere out there waiting for your dead body. Doesn't matter who you are or where you are, uh, one day the truth is you are going to be quite dead. For some of us, that's sooner than others, but it's true for all of us. And here's the thing do you know in a hundred years, chances are pretty good no one will remember your name? I'm just trying to be encouraging this morning. Um, <laughs> Including the people who carry your genes in their bloodstream. The universe rolls on frenetically, and it, in every single case, uh, eventually kills us. So, all of us are faced with this dilemma, and the dilemma is this how do we, in our short time here on Earth, find meaning and significance? Christians often say that Jesus is the answer to this dilemma. You know, Jesus pays for our sin and gives us a ticket to heaven so we can get out of here and avoid the coming destruction. This world's going to be destroyed. I'm not sure that's very good theology, but that's how it gets presented at times. And the thing about that uh, understanding of your faith or that story of your faith is it gives you uh, uh, some hope in the face of death, but it doesn't really do much for your sense of significance or meaning. I mean, if the world's ultimately destroyed and everything you do is ultimately destroyed as well, it's nice to get out of here, but it doesn't give you uh, significance for your everyday life. So how do we find meaning? I think most of the people in our world try to generate meaning in and of themselves. It's kind of a result of existentialism. Existentialism says that I act and by acting I create meaning and significance for myself. And we, in our culture, have bought into that. And I think even Christians wrestle with that because the story, yeah, my eternal destiny is taken care of, but my significance right now is not. So we think if we accomplish things or, or have great experiences, or or make the most we can out of life or find that right relationship, somehow that will infuse us with meaning. But the reality is because we're all going to die and those accomplishments and those relationships and all those experiences disappear with that death, and it's not anything attached to anything bigger than ourselves, we're still left pretty empty. I really believe that the only way a person finds meaning in life is by attaching themselves to something bigger than themselves, by becoming part of a story that is beyond them and greater than them. Donald Miller uh, has suggested that we are trees uh, in the story of a forest, and he suggests that that story of the forest is better than the story of the trees, but we tend to live out Christian life as if the story of the trees were the only story and the story of the forest doesn't exist." Think about that for a moment. In fact, Russell Moore puts it this way, and I referred to this quote last week, "For too long we've called unbelievers to invite Jesus into your life. Jesus wasn't, doesn't want to be part of your life. Your life's a wreck. Jesus calls you into his life, into his story, into something bigger. And his life isn't boring or purposelessness or static. It is wild and exhilarating and unpredictable. Christianity gives us this opportunity to be part of a story that is bigger than ourselves, the story of the kingdom. So this morning we're going to talk about the story of the kingdom And I think it's an important, critical story to understand. I think that's true for a number of reasons. First of all, it's critical because we need a larger story, the story of the kingdom, to understand Jesus. You see, the kingdom and the story of the kingdom provides the backdrop for who Jesus is. And until we get that big picture, we're going to be unclear. Years ago... uh, Maria Reich tells this story in a book called Mystery on the Desert. Um, there, there were a series of strange, they almost seemed like irrigation ditches. Um, this was in the plains of Peru. And uh, they were made by the Nazia, Nazia Indians. And, and they thought they were just drainage ditches. And they couldn't understand because they didn't make any sense. Where would you take water that wasn't there? But that's all they could understand. Then in the 1930s, 1940s, a guy named Paul Kosak of Long Island University discovered that what they thought were drainage ditches were not drainage ditches at all. They were these, these huge drawings of animals um, that you could only see if you were in a plane. And I think that's a great illustration. If you're so close, if you miss the big context, the bigger story, you're not going to understand what is really going on. But if you can get some perspective, it changes everything. I think that's true with Jesus as well. When we only look at him outside the context of the kingdom, we tend to distort the story of what is really happening in the gospel. Um, It also changes not only our understanding of Jesus... But if we gain the kingdom story and understand it, it changes our understanding of the Bible. A lot of times we go to the Bible and we treat it as disconnected bits of information or disconnected stories. And we read it for moral lessons. But when you take those bits out of the bigger context, it's easy to distort them. Whether you realize it or not, the scriptures are telling a story. One story about what God is doing in the universe. Now, the problem is it's not just a simple little narrative. When you go to Scripture, it's a wandering saga with all kinds of different literature and poetry and art and stories within stories, and it chases funny trails, and it goes all over the place. But if you could stand back and catch the story, suddenly it goes, oh, this is starting to make sense for me. And often we miss that. So it's critical for understanding Jesus. It's critical for understanding the Bible. And it's key to our lives because the story of the Bible tells the story of the world. I like what Craig Bartholomew writes uh, in a book called The Drama of Scripture. We're going to order it for the bookstore. It, It is worth your time to read The Drama of Scripture. He writes this. He says, The Bible claims to be the real world. This story among all stories claims to tell the whole truth about the way our own world really is. Here inside this story we are meant to find the meaning of our lives. Here we must find a place in which our own experience was meant to fit. It is in this story that we find the ultimate significance of human life itself. That's quite a claim but I think he's true. So we're going to Focus in on the kingdom story. Uh, last week, just to catch us up, we we talked about the kingdom of God. We talked about uh, how important it is in Scripture and in the ministry of Jesus. We talked about what the kingdom is—that it's not a realm, a place, or a people, although it involves those. But essentially, it's God's authority, His rule. And we talked about the fact that it's kind of strange in the fact that there is a future kingdom when God will rule in His fullness, but that that kingdom, because Jesus has come, has infiltrated this world. So we live in the now and the not yet. And you and I are kingdom people, even though we don't get to experience the kingdom in its fullness. And we said, because of that reality, we have to see Jesus as king and bow to him as Lord. And we have to realize uh, we live in the now and the not yet. Okay. That's last week. So this week, We want to talk about the kingdom story. And the best way for me to describe the kingdom story for you is to put it into some movements. And we're going to do four movements. The first movement is creation. The second movement is the fall. The third is rescue or redemption. And the fourth is restoration. That's the four movements of the story. We're going to talk about each of those movements a little bit. Um, This morning we're going to read some passages that tie with that. And and we're going to read those passages from a little book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's one of my favorite books. It's a kid's book, but it kind of is a paraphrase or a retelling of the biblical story. And it's in a creative way. And some of these passages that we're, we're going to read or listen to this morning are so familiar they they lose some of their impact, so we thought it would be fun and, and maybe helpful to hear them just a little bit differently this morning. So we're going to begin with Jenny reading for, to us about the creation.
1: In the beginning, there was nothing, nothing to hear, nothing to feel, nothing to see, only emptiness and darkness, and nothing but nothing. But God was there, and God had a wonderful plan. I'll take this emptiness, God said, and I'll fill it up. Out of the darkness, I'm going to make light, and out of the nothing, I'm going to make everything. Like a mommy bird flutters her wings over her eggs to help her babies hatch, God hovered over the deep, silent darkness. He was making life happen. God spoke. That's all. And whatever he said, it happened.
0: So God created the day and night, land and stars, flowers, trees, plants of all kinds, animals in the water and on the land. And then...
1: God breathed life into Adam and Eve. When they opened their eyes, the first thing they ever saw was God's face. And when God saw them, he was like a new dad. You look like me, he said. You're the most beautiful thing I've ever made. God loved them with all of his heart, and they were lovely because he loved them. And Adam and Eve joined in the song of the stars and the streams and the wind and the trees, the wonderful song of love to the one who made them. Their hearts were filled with happiness, and nothing ever made them sad or lonely or sick or afraid. God looked at everything he had made. Perfect, he said, and it was. But all the stars and the mountains and oceans and galaxies and everything were nothing compared to how much God loved his children. He would move heaven and earth to be near them. Always, whatever happened, whatever it cost him, he would always love them. And so it was that the wonderful love story began.
0: So Genesis, uh, especially chapters 1 through 3, uh, tell us the beginning of the story. And Genesis 1 through 3 is what we call creational literature. It's a, a particular type, a genre of literature. And, and it's important to understand when you read that passage of Scripture, it, it's not a scientific handbook. Its focus is not on how things happened, but who made them happen. And Genesis is really written to tell us about the nature of God, the nature of our world, and the nature of ourselves. And and that's what we need to let it do. Sometimes we come to the text and ask questions that it wasn't intended to answer and it gets us into all kinds of problems. But if we let the literature be what it is, creation literature, and inform us about who God is, what the world is, and who we are, it suddenly makes sense. And in those three chapters, God is the primary actor. He's the subject of all the verbs he creates he makes he sees he blesses and the story begins with an act of God in the beginning God created and he is the one 15 times he is the one who creates everything in fact we're told he creates heaven and earth it's the way of saying the whole universe and because he's its creator he's its its king What is interesting, at the very beginning of the story, God establishes his kingdom. In in other words, he is king and he's ruling, he's exercising his authority. He manifests that in a realm, in the created order, and he actually has subjects, us human beings, And, and there is shalom. So you see the kingdom in its fullness at the very start. Now there are some important things to learn from that little story. The first thing you want to learn is that God is transcendent. That's just a word that means apart of or separate from. God is separate from his creation. God is not in the mountains. He is not in the stream. He is not in the fish. He is not in you and me. He is separate from all those things because he's apart from it and he created it. So he's, he's above his creation. He's transcendent. But the interesting thing that Genesis tells us is he's also imminent. That means The opposite of the spectrum. He, although is different than his creation, he's involved in it. In in every place, God is an actor in the story. It's, It's not like he winds up the clock and then sets it ticking and then walks away. God is too close for that to happen. He's involved in his creation, and he's in charge supremely so. so. And because it's his creation, ultimately it is for his purposes. There's a a Latin phrase, caram dio, that uh, literally means before the face of God. It's a phrase that is used in the Latin Vulgate Bible 50 times and it creates this image of a near-eastern monarch in his court with all the servants around. Uh, um, they're living in his presence, and, and their primary concern is what does the, the sovereign, the king, want, Caramdeo? And this picture of creation creates that image. That is how we are to live. Karam Deo, before the face of God, because God is not in his creation, he's apart from it, but he's involved. And thus we live our lives in front of him. The second thing it tells us is that this creation is good. In fact, God says it is good. Which is interesting because it tells you something about the nature of the physical existence. Sometimes we get infiltrated with the notion of dualism that gives us this idea that those things that are supernatural or apart from the physical are better than those that are physical. But God says, no, the physical creation is good. Matter matters to Him. And, and that's a huge difference from so many uh, philosophies and religions of the world. Eastern religion oftentimes views uh, the physical creation as an illusion. Greek and Roman religion and thinking views the physical creation either as secondary or evil, as something you want to get away from. Islam views ultimate creation as spiritual. But it's only Christianity that says, no, the spiritual and the physical both matter. Now that has huge implications in how you live because it means you can enjoy the entirety of life. There's nothing wrong with sitting down to a good meal and drinking a nice glass of wine. It's okay to watch a football game and cheer and enjoy it. It's okay to go fishing and relish catching a fish on the end of the line. The physical part of reality is good and to be enjoyed. It's okay. Matter matters. The third thing that that creation story tells us and there's so much more in there that I'm leaving out but the third thing is that people are in God's image. That's important. Because the truth is is if we are created in God's image you and I and every person you ever meet is created in God's image and bears his image that means we have value. What makes a Picasso worth millions of dollars? It's not the lines on the page. It's the creator of the lines on the page. You see, the the value rests in the creator. If we just are the result of an evolutionary process, then it's almost impossible to say human beings have intrinsic value. And if you can't say human beings have intrinsic value, you have no basis for ethics, no way of determining what is right and what is wrong. Our our, our, uh, our society and most of the world just uh, attributes values to human beings arbitrarily. But when you begin to press that, there's no justification for doing that. No justification saying, for saying why a human being is more valuable than a porpoise or a chimpanzee or an ant or a sunflower. But if you are a believer in the story, the Christian story, we say you're creating God's image. And thus, every person you ever meet, no matter the color of their skin, the location of their birth, the language they speak... Needs to be treated like deity because they value and they matter. That's huge. It also tells us not only are we uh, created in His image, but but this notion of image. The word actually is a word that means statue. So not only are are we reflective of His image, but it tells us we're representative. In olden days, uh, emperors would place statues in far flung provinces to remind people of who they served. And that statue was an image or a representative uh, of the sovereign king. Guess what, folks? Because we're in God's image, we're representatives of the sovereign king. And we're to live out and exercise, be co-regents with him, co-kings and queens, exercising dominion and rule in his world. And what was interesting in the Genesis account is that notion of being his image, his representative in his world and exercising dominion, gives huge significance even to the mundane. Because when we do the normal tasks of living life in God's creation, we are functioning as his hands and feet. And that means all of life takes on meaning. What you do for a job has meaning because you're a representative of God image in that place. Lots of important stuff just in creation. So things start out well, but they do not stay that way. Pretty soon things go wrong. Melissa is going to share with us the fall.
2: Adam and Eve lived happily together in their beautiful new home, and everything was perfect. For a while, until the day when everything went wrong. God had a horrible enemy. His name was Satan. Satan had once been the most beautiful angel, but he didn't want to be just an angel. He wanted to be God. He grew proud and evil and full of hate, and God had to send him out of heaven. Satan was seething with anger and looking for a way to hurt God. He wanted to stop God's plan, stop this love story right there. So he disguised himself as a snake and waited in the garden. Now God had given Adam and Eve only one rule. Don't eat the fruit on that tree, God told them, because if you do, you'll think you know everything. You'll stop trusting me. And then death and sadness and tears will come. You see, God knew if they ate the fruit, they would think they didn't need him, and they would try to make themselves happy without him. But God knew there was no such thing as happiness without him, and life without him wouldn't be life at all. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? the serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly, she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all, and you'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me.
0: Adam and Eve suddenly realized they were naked, so they hid. God came looking for them in the garden, and they had no choice but to admit what they had done. Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blamed the serpent.
2: And a terrible pain came into God's heart. His children hadn't just broken one rule. They had broken God's heart. They had broken their wonderful relationship with him, and now he knew everything else would break. God's creation would start to unravel and come undone and go wrong. From now on, everything would die, even though it was all supposed to last forever. You see, sin had come into God's perfect world, and it would never leave. God's children would always be running away from him and hiding in the dark. Their hearts would break now and would never work properly again. God couldn't let his children live forever, not in such pain, not without him. There was only one way to protect them. You will have to leave the garden now, God told his children, his eyes filling with tears. This is no longer your true home. It's not the place for you anymore. But before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children to cover them. He gently clothed them and then sent them away on a long, long journey, out of the garden, out of their
0: home. So God created this uh, paradise for Adam and Eve and established his kingdom. And he basically says, uh, it's yours. The beauty, the pleasure, the wonderment, all of it I created. So run free, play, enjoy, create, eat from any tree and drink from any stream. But don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what's up with that? Why would God do that kind of thing and place people in that predicament? And why the one restriction? And I think the reason for the one restriction is not that there was anything wrong in and of itself in the fruit of the tree. What the restriction was was God's prohibition. God was setting up an opportunity for them to choose either for him or against him. Because if you are going to have a real relationship, there has to be freedom. And there has to be trust. And that means there has to be choice. So God creates choice. And when he creates choice, he creates the opportunity for rebellion. And that's exactly what happens. Adam and Eve choose against God. And it's really a form of idolatry. And That's always the essence of all sin, idolatry. It's really saying, I want something other than God to be God. And in this case, it was themselves. Now, that rebellion actually takes a place on two levels on a cosmic level, with a a creature we know as Satan, um, who's the prince in the power there, this angelic being that uh, desires to be like God. And he's the tempter in this story, he's the adversary, he's the one working against God. And suddenly, there's a potential for rebellion in the kingdom of God, and then human beings join that rebellion. Now, the thing to realize is that when Adam and Eve sin, all hell literally breaks loose because everything becomes broken. First of all, their relationship with God is fractured, and they became alienated from Him, the trust has been violated. Second, their relationship to themselves has become broken because they become alienated in how they think of who they are. That's why they feel shame and they have to cover up. Their relationship with each other is broken as well. They begin to blame and become selfish. And, this is important, their behavior impacts the creation as well and in scripture when we talk about the creation it is not just nature but it's everything that happens with nature and because of our interaction with nature so the fall affects the social institutions and the culture and the art and the educational systems that men develop because they're all affected by sin everything is corrupt everything is tainted in the whole creation. One of the places to see this, and often we miss this because a lot of times when we think about the fall, we always individualize it and personalize it. We have trouble understanding that there's a corporate responsibility and that these two people, Adam and Eve's decision, could affect not just them, but the whole room and race and the whole of creation. Uh, we want responsibility simply to reside with the actors. But the way the Bible is set up, there's ripple effects And it affects everything. So in Romans chapter 8, you pick up this hint that more was happening in the fall than we might think. For it says there, For the creation waits, eager in expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. He's saying at the fall, creation fell as well. Subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. (laughs) When I think of this this idea of the whole creation fall, I'm also reminded of a time in my youth. It was Christmas, and my parents, uh, Santa Claus, left me a uh, model airplane under the tree, and I was really excited. I got up early, I unpack the model airplane with it was a tube of glue and I wanted to put it together right then. But the tube of glue wasn't opened. I took the cap off and you know with a tube of glue you got to punch the little top so the glue comes out. I was 10 or 11. I didn't understand that. And I figured that the way you uh, got the glue to come out was to press harder. I pressed harder. And the glue exploded over me, over the carpet over everything. So what did I do? I got wrapping paper and laid it over everything to hide it. (laughs) And I learned that day that sin has consequences. (laughs) Far-reaching consequences for me, for the carpet, for the environment. Everything fell at that moment. Sin is that way. It taints everything. So uh, the kingdom at this point is compromised. There has rebellion. God's kingdom is no longer in its fullness because there are people who are not living according to his authority and his rule. And the question is, what is he going to do? God is not content to leave his creation or his creatures in a fallen state. So he begins a rescue operation what we call redemption. Redemption is a word that simply means to buy back. It comes from the slave market. You pay a ransom. You redeem to buy something back. And God begins His process of redemption to reestablish His kingdom in a sense to buy it back. Now, the way He plays out His redemption is really through three key players. Um, And this is where the story gets a little more complicated. The first player is Israel. God decides he's going to work through a people that come out of a man named Abraham. And he tells Abraham that through you and your descendants, I'm going to bless the world. I want you to live according to my rules as if you're in my kingdom. And if you do that, you will become a light to the Gentiles. You'll become a light to the rest of the world. But Abraham fails. In fact, they live end up in, Israel, uh, in uh, Egypt and you hear the story of the Exodus. And the story of the Exodus is, is a little, little piece of redemption, a pattern that's being laid down where God intervenes to redeem. And out of that, he establishes the nation of Israel and they begin to wander in the desert. And then you get to the period of the Judges. During the period of the judges, uh, God doesn't want Israel to have a king. He wants to be their king, so they are to operate without a king. But it doesn't work. They continue to fall into sin and rebellion, and God has to raise up leaders. And eventually, Israel says, hey, we want a real king. We want a human king. And it's a rejection of God's authority. But then we meet David, and David becomes kind of the pattern of the ultimate king, one who eventually will come and establish his kingdom and then we see rebellion against with solomon and the division of the kingdoms uh, israel eventually goes into exile because of their sin and rebellion and god again you see the pattern of redemption he brings them back and through the midst of this you have the prophets and for the course of 300 years the prophets begin talking about this this one called messiah this this King, who's going to eventually come and eventually set up a perfect world. He's going to do away with all injustice. He's going to right every wrong. Uh, the lion will lay down with the lamb. There'll be no more war. There'll be no more sickness. No more blindness. No more lameness. Everything will be made right. So Israel gets this expectation that a Messiah is going to come, which gets us to the second major player. Jesus. Now, Jesus is the Messiah. We know him as the Christ, which means anointed one or the King. He invades enemy territory, and with him comes the reestablishment of the kingdom because he is the King. He is incarnated into our world. God comes in the flesh to make things right and to reestablish his kingdom. Now, the Jews misunderstand that because they've been listening to the prophets, and they think that the moment the Messiah, this coming king, is going to come, he's going to make everything right right then. And they're living under Roman oppression, and their expectation is he's going to kick out the Romans and set up his kingdom and create the utopia right now, and that doesn't happen. And yet Jesus makes this astounding claim that the kingdom yet is still there. How can he say that? Jesus' plan is far greater than what the Jews were expecting Jesus understands that the real enemy isn't the Romans who are oppressing them that the real enemy is Satan and the rebellion that happened on a cosmic level and it's that that he is going to correct and the way he corrects that is by going to the cross and dying listen as Jenna reads to us about the rescue.
3: So you're a king, are you? The Roman soldiers jeered. Then you'll need a crown and a robe. They gave Jesus a crown made out of thorns and put a purple robe on him and pretended to bow down to him. Your majesty, they said. Then they whipped him and spat on him. They didn't understand that this was the prince of life the king of heaven and earth, who had come to rescue them. The soldiers made him a sign, Our King, and nailed it to a wooden cross. They walked up a hill outside the city. Jesus carried the cross on his back. Jesus had never done anything wrong, but they were going to kill him the way criminals were killed. They nailed Jesus to the cross. Father, forgive them, Jesus gasped they don't understand what you're they're doing you say you've come to rescue us people shouted but you can't even rescue yourself but they were wrong jesus could have rescued himself a legion of angels would have flown to his side if he'd called if you were really the son of god you could just climb down off that cross they said and of course they were right jesus could have just climbed down actually He could have just said a word and made it stop, like when he healed that little girl or stilled the storm and fed 5,000 people. But Jesus stayed. You see, they didn't understand. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus there. It was love. Papa, Jesus cried, frantically searching the sky. Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. And for the first time and the last when he spoke nothing happened just a horrible endless silence god didn't answer he turned away from his boy tears rolled down jesus's face the face of the one who would wipe away every tear from every eye even though it was midday a dreadful darkness covered the face of the world. The sun could not shine. The earth trembled and quaked. The great mountain shook. Rocks split in two until it seemed that the whole world would break apart, that creation itself would tear apart. The full force of the storm of God's fierce anger at sin was coming down on his own son instead of his people. It was the only way God could destroy sin and not destroy his children, whose hearts were filled with sin. Then Jesus shouted in a loud voice, It is finished! And it was. He had done it. Jesus had rescued the whole world. Father, Jesus cried, I give you my life. And with a great sigh, he let himself die. Strange clouds and shadows filled the sky, purple, orange, black like a bruise. Jesus' friends gently carried Jesus. They laid Jesus in a new tomb carved out of rock. How could Jesus die? What had gone wrong? What did it mean? They didn't know anything anymore. Except they did know that their hearts were breaking. That's the end of Jesus, the leader said. But just to be sure... They sent strong soldiers to guard the tomb. They hauled a huge stone in front of the door to the tomb so that no one could get in.
0: But that was not the end of the story, nor was it the end of
4: Jesus. Jesus' friends were sad. They would never see their best friend again. How could this happen? Wasn't Jesus the rescuer? The king God had promised? It wasn't supposed to end like this. Yes, but whoever said anything about the end? Just before sunrise on the third day, God sent an earthquake and an angel from heaven. When the guards saw the angel, they fell down with fright. The angel rolled the huge stone away, sat on top of it, and waited. At the first glimmer of dawn, Mary Magdalene and other women headed to the tomb to wash Jesus' body. The early morning sun slanted through the ancient olive trees, Drops of dew glittering on leaves and grasses, little tears everywhere. The friends walked quietly along the hilly path through the olive groves until they reached the tomb and immediately noticed something odd. It was wide open. They peered through the opening into the dark tomb. But wait, Jesus' body was gone. And something else. A shining man was there with clothes made from lightning. Don't be scared, the angel said. But they couldn't help it, they screamed anyway. The angel asked them, what are you doing here? This is a tomb and tombs are for dead people. The woman couldn't speak. Jesus isn't dead anymore, he said, he's alive again. And their hearts leapt and then the angel laughed with such gladness that they felt for a moment as if they had woken from a nightmare. The women
0: rush off, but Mary stays and suddenly meets the resurrected Jesus. He's alive. Jesus dies and he's resurrected. But the key question is, what does that mean? What is happening at the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And how do we view that? I think this is where we get into trouble sometimes. You know, what has happened is we've limited the nature of the fall to simply people. So when Jesus dies on the cross, sometimes we only see his death as redeeming people but it's more than that. When I think about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, I like to think of a camera with a, a zoom lens. There's one way you zoom in, and one of the things you can zoom in is on the personal level, Jesus is dying for people's sins. We call it substitutionary atonement. He's taking their place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus is redeeming people and restoring them and paying for their sin. But there's more than that going out and going on. And sometimes we have to Pack off the lens and take the micro view because what Jesus is doing is he's not just providing forgiveness, but he's also defeating evil and defeating Satan and defeating death and redeeming all of creation. And remember, creation isn't just the natural order, but all of life, the culture, the art, the business, all of it is being redeemed by what Jesus is doing on the cross. Listen to Colossians chapter 1 where God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile or make peace to himself and all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood shed on the cross. Something cosmic is going on in the death of Jesus on the cross. He's bringing about redemption for all creation. And that has huge implications for the next player in the drama, which is the church. Because if with Jesus the kingdom is arriving, the church then becomes kingdom people. And as a result, our mission is to be witnesses of the gospel of the good news of the kingdom that Jesus has redeemed creation. Sometimes we shrink that responsibility down simply to evangelism. It's as if we look at the world and say the world is a wrecked place and it's going to be destroyed and we have a lifeboat and our job is to get as many people in the lifeboat as we can and traditionally that's how we've seen the mission of the church but that truncates what Jesus did on the cross because the world is not simply headed for destruction it's headed for renewal when the world gets renewed and redeemed and made like what it should have been so our job is as the church, is to be gospel kingdom people, to be witnesses of this incredible gospel. And we tell people about King Jesus and we invite them to become his disciples. But we engage in every area of life to bring the kingdom to bear. It's like we're to be the previews of the coming movie. We are are to be the hors d'oeuvres of the great banquet that's coming in heaven. We are to be a foretaste of what God has done. And eventually, the restoration will come. Claire is going to, to read to us It's uh, from the book of Revelation, actually. John, who wrote it, is one of the 12 apostles. He's old, and at this moment, he's imprisoned on the island in Patmos. And Jesus appears to him and tells him about the end of time in the final chapter of the story, the restoration.
5: I see a throne, and on the throne is a king and the king is Jesus. All around the throne, people are bowing down. They are giving him their treasures. There are loud cheers and clapping, clapping in bright laughter like a thousand waterfalls, and everyone bursts out singing a new song. This is our king, the lamb who died, so we don't have to, our rescuer. All honor and glory forever and ever, and every creature everywhere, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth and in the sea, joins in. And then, from all around, a wide, immense, beautiful silence. And I see Satan, God's horrible enemy, thrown down, defeated. I see a sparkling city shimmering in the sky, glittering, glowing, coming down from heaven and from the sky, Heaven is coming down to earth. God's city is beautiful. Walls of topaz, jasper, jasper, sapphire, wide streets paved with gold, gleaming pearl gates that are never locked shut. Where is the sun? Where is the moon? They aren't needed anymore. God is all the light people need. No more darkness and no more night. And the king says, look. God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying. Because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Every sad thing has come untrue. And see, I have wiped away every tear from every eye. And then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky says, look. I am making everything new.
0: The best uh, understanding of the restoration is really the resurrection of Jesus. We have this uh, bad theology traveling around that tells us that eventually the world is simply going to be destroyed and then God's going to create a new world and a new heaven. But if you study what God does to the world, especially in First Peter 3, you begin to understand that the world gets judged and laid bare and sin gets destroyed, but the world itself doesn't. It, at the restoration, gets remade. Things get redone so they become what they were originally intended to be. You see it in the resurrection of Jesus. There's a continuity and a discontinuity. Uh, A continuity, in other words, you can look at the resurrected Jesus and know that it's Jesus and he still has his body and he still has his wounds and there's things that transverse into the new realm because in the resurrected realm you get the natural and the supernatural melding together and there's this new dimension. That resurrection not only happens to us as people but happens to the creation itself. So there's a continuity between this world and the world to come, and that's hugely important because if there's a continuity between this world and the world to come, that infuses everything you do in this world with significance and meaning because it's part of what the coming kingdom is about. There is going to be art that was created here that makes it to heaven. Every piece of work you do in your job, you do it for kingdom purposes and to bring God glory, that's going to make it through into the restoration. You see, we used to say there's the sacred part of life and the secular part of life and the secular part of life is just burned up, which burns up about 90% of what we're about. But that's not right. Your work has divine significance and meaning. Everything you do in life is touched by the eternal and will be restored and laid bare and judged and much of it will continue on into the next realm. And if you understand this, you, you also understand that ultimately our, resting, our eternal resting place is not heaven. Right? We've been telling people, pray the prayer, get out of here, the world's gonna be destroyed and go to heaven where you'll be with Jesus sitting on a cloud. That's not what happens. Heaven is a temporary location because what happens at the end of the book of Revelation, heaven, the city of God, comes down to earth. And we spend eternity in this realm renewed. I love what Russell Moore writes. He says, the moment you burst through the mud above your grave, you will begin an exciting new mission. When you couldn't comprehend if someone told you and those things that seem so important now, whether you're attractive or wealthy or famous or cancer free will be totally irrelevant the new world, the new heavens going to be awesome you see it's a whole story that we're part of and the question is the question is are you part of the story Let me get real honest for a moment. Life is not a game. The decisions you make here will impact your eternity. So you must be sober when you make decisions about which story you're going to be a part of. You can try to create your own story and infuse your life with your own meaning and live apart from the story of God, but that is reckless and headed for disaster. The way to live and give meaning to your life is to infuse yourself in God's story. Amen.